Although it has been around for centuries, populism as a movement has not just taken, but has commanded center stage for the past year. On one hand, a common thread amongst these populism waves has initially doubt been followed by a certainty that such an ideal could never succeed, and ultimately disbelief when it does come to fruition and in some cases wins elections. On the other hand, these waves also bring voice in the form of votes to people who feel as if they have not been heard or left behind by politicians and the elites. In cases where populism has won, like Brexit's the United States and Turkey, to other countries where populism has lost, but only slightly, such as Austria and the Netherlands, the message is clear. Populism continues to remain a key and pressing theme as we head into the French election next week. On this week's edition of Substances, we international relations students speak about what populism is, why it has gained such a strong following, and where we think it is headed. Clearly, traditional politics are being left behind, and the question that remains is, is populism the answer, or is there an alternative that acts as a better, less divisive voice for the people? Stay tuned to find out. Merriam-Webster states that populism, by definition, is a political party that claims to represent the common people. It was first coined in 1891 by a political party that was interested in the rights of agrarian people and meant to advocate the coinage of silver, as well as government control of monopolies, to keep them in check. This has evolved, like all political parties, but continues to appeal to the common people in unison against the government. Therefore, a populist candidate, by definition, is one who believes in rights, wisdoms, and virtues of common people. So why are we talking about populism today, since it's been a term since 1891? Well, in Europe, there's a lot of populism going on, looking at the um, Dutch elections, which were just one month ago, I think. Looking at Austria's election, uh, which actually took one year to be um, actually fully lawfully implemented, and um, now also the French elections take place. As of now, thank God the um, populists did not win, but we'll see about that in about one week. Yeah, so it all kind of started taking place last June with the Brexit, which was total fallout for a lot of Europe, and it came as a huge shock. And since then, we've been kind of on a roll of also the U.S. not thinking that it was even possible, and it kept continuing and continuing, and not only was it popping up in tiny little countries. Then the Dutch election. So after uh, Donald Trump was elected uh, president of the United States, it just kind of seemed that the world was falling to populism or populism leaders um, that used divisive rhetoric at least to get um, elected. I think a huge part of when you're going off the rhetoric, we're talking about people that are using divisive things and they're also really stuck on keeping something that was a common theme or something that they really want. So a huge, the people gravitate towards these leaders because they're 
they want their conventional and conventional might not be the right word, but like this lifestyle, they don't want things stripped from them. They don't want a French mentality. They don't want the real U.S. dream to be taken from them. And so they can use these ideals, even if they haven't really ever existed, to as a platform to run off of. And a huge amount of these changes come from the influx of refugees, or they also come from just a change in lifestyle in general. And people want traditional ways. And that's something people always want. And so they, they've used these, like, religion as a basis or... Yeah, I think they're, they're, that what they're doing is that one of their main tools is that they're feeding us uh, these very many narratives about certain crises that are happening, for example, in Europe or around the world. And they keep saying, well, this is a crisis that we're facing. This is what's happening to us. This is what's happening to us. And they use that to make the people buy into it or feed into this kind of... Um, crisis mentality and then then they would say yeah these are these are the people who are going to save us these are our saviors and then now we need to um, elect them which is uh, which is obviously very dangerous and it's not something that's only um, happening um, for example in Europe or in the United States something that it goes on into the Muslim world as well in the Middle East um, obviously maybe in different levels but it's, it does not go across the media like a big wave like it does in Europe and the United States because uh, you see that inside the Middle East there are many Western, for example, allies. So it's better for uh, it's better for the West not to talk about the rise of populism in the Middle East because for them they have a lot of, um, let's say, kind of personal interest inside this area. But it is something that rises and it is something that is dangerous as well that's happening right now in the Middle East. I think it's really interesting the connection between populist leaders and strongman leaders, so to say, because they use fear, like you were saying, of terrorist attacks or refugees in Europe to like gain power and then only give that power to a certain portion of people that are their most loyal supporters. And I think it's most interesting in Russia because um, Putin kind of claims himself to be a populist leader, but he's, he's not really. But although he claims a lot of the population voted from him. It's also interesting too, as you guys were mentioning, that it's happening all over the world. I think populism also stems from, it's a reaction to globalization, that these niches of people are very fearful of not having a traditional um, American values or French or what have you, and they're fearful of this blend that is so easy, easily occurring and um, accessible because of technology, because travel is easier um, and this blend's happening. So on one hand, there's a lot of education and a lot of great things happening, what's happening right here, an interdialogue between many other cultures, but then on the other hand, it's an, it's like an inverse reaction that it's negatively affecting and creating this, what I consider a negative reaction to globalization. I think one thing that they always do is they try to tap into a very widespread amount of people. So they might have someone who is gay rights activist, but also wants some type of traditional lifestyle with something else. And they're able to convey a message that like is not an over-branching message, that it it is able to talk to a lot of people. So you have the five-star movement in Italy, and that was something that was all-encompassing, where you had some people that were very, very progressive in some ways, but also because of the refugee crisis has seen the economy even sink greater, and so they were anti-immigration. And so being able to get to speak to people who want one thing but not the other is very important. Um, for instance, in the U.S., you had a bunch of people that voted for 
indirectly for a populist leader by voting for a third party. And I think that is also something that's it's it's worth talking about. It's something that they were so anti one party that they would go and vote for a third party, which in the case of a two party system is is fundamentally breaks it. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. And I think that um, there is a term that is going on right now when it comes to po these populists is that they're called democratically illiberal, as in like they come to power through democracy, they're, they they run in the democratic process, they get elected democratically by the people, but when they come to power, they're very illiberal or against a lot of the movements that have been built um, by people or leaders before them that were, for example, welcome to the refugees, welcome to the LGBT um, um, community. And so that term, I think, describes them very perfectly. Um, but again, the, you wouldn't see it because they have been um, elected democratically. And also, I think they don't have many competitors. You know, as van der Bellen, people only, not all the people, but many people only voted for him because they wanted to avoid hope for the populist leader. The same is uh, the same case it's in, in, in France right now with Marie Le Pen being very popular because of her methodical skills. Florent is going to um, maybe tell us a bit more because she actually understands French. <laughs> um, but Macron is just, he pleases everyone. Mm -hmm. He wants to please everyone. Nobody wants to vote for a person who is pleasant to everyone. Mm -hmm. So we definitely have to think about uh, installing some interesting people, interesting liberals mm -hmm. who actually portray their ideas and don't do everything people want. Yeah. I think we also have to think about what populism means, even if you're using that running as a populist leader, you're using these things, but once you're actually in power and you're doing stuff that is not, is no longer populism, and you're doing things that align with the government, what, what happens then? Like, are they only using this as a place to get to speak to the masses and then get elected? And then once they're in power, they continue to do very pro-government or huge business type things. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same about that. I think it's just a way to uh, have people vote for them. And once they're in power, they feel like they can do kind of whatever they want. Yeah. And so, but the, I mean, Marine Le Pen especially is being very... Uh, convincive because she she's an incredible speaker as I say in, in French she I, I understand how she convinces people mm -hmm. to vote for her because she appears as the savior as the one who will not let terrorists in mm -hmm. and that's what people are afraid of especially in France yeah. I mean living on the border I know how it feels to be in France when we have a threat of terrorism that is constantly there um, and it's been there. It's been really it's real in France. There. And France has yeah. been the number one target yeah. in Europe. Even mm -hmm. though if it happened everywhere in Europe, France has been the target. Do you think there's a reason for that? That's French specifically? I mean, it has happened everywhere. It happened in Berlin in December. It happened just in Stockholm. But France yeah. is so yeah. deeply connected. With um, do you uh, think? I don't know exactly why it's France and not another big country, but... It's what France represents, the yes, values yeah. of democracy, yeah. the values of Europe, the values of Western... Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with the location in the south, though, because the Mediterranean Sea route is right there, mm -hmm. and it's so easy to just like slip in undetected. And there's still an economic like mm -hmm. house for Europe, whereas Italy, 
and Greece are not. So I think France is still like, it's that collective unit that Europe looks to. I mean, if, if moving on to that, if France is or does fall out of the EU, especially with a, a Le Pen being elected, that's something that would absolutely break Europe yeah, apart. No, mm-hmm. you will not stand yeah. that alone. And I think psychologically speaking, the, the, the movements that these people or these populists represent is something that has been kind of missing in the politics of these countries. Um, it's it's a kind of a, a, a very kind of like a movement that hasn't been, for example, presented by Hillary. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you listen to her, you see there is some kind of passion that is lacking when she speaks or sometimes it, it comes across as like she's probably faking it when you compare her to someone who is so passionate and loud like Trump and that speaks to um, maybe kind of um, the feeling of insecurity that the people have not have been feeling because of for example her or other leaders and and that is so once you have very a hypnotizing kind of a speaker it's 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 probably very easy for him to like you said, maybe like slip in some some indirect messages. But for example, Donald Trump or Le Pen, they're very direct, but they get to get kind of get away with it or appeal to the people because of uh, the certain charisma that they bring in, the certain movement of uh, we are the people, this is us, this is our movement. And it's something that the sense of belonging that these people, maybe a lot of them, would like to be part of. But they're also simplifying statements. Mm -hmm. Because Hillary and Van der Bellen and all those more liberal and democratic people, they do say complex things mm-hmm. which the masses do not get because they do not research they only listen to what their political party yeah. leader says and they do not think out of it um, and research sources mm-hmm. so they just give them answers going off of that too another uh, common criticism in particular in reference to the united states is that trump he had a slogan, make America great again. Though he never actually defined what that meant, he it's still a, like the people could interpret what that meant. Hillary's um, like strategy was to to react to what he was saying, to correct him. And yeah. she never really had her own ideas, like strategy. This is what we are. This is what we believe. And he had like a plan. And like looking back, of course, you know, it's easy to judge this like 2020, but looking forward in terms of populism, I think people who are going against populist candidates, you need to have your own platform. You do need to, you now have to kind of become a, another form of populism um, and form strategy. I think another factor, too, is um, historical memory, because the reason Europe was formed was post-World War II, dealing with the Cold War, etc. And that really forced people to say, like, okay, we need to be together against the common good, but people have forgotten that. Because, you know, Cold War comes to an end at the 90s, and then globalism starts happening, and, like, further inequality throughout the continent, throughout the world. And that's, like, why the EU was founded. This was the longest peace period, like, ever, I think, in the history of Europe. And I think that's lost in the, that memory, and it's really crucial moving forward because populism it goes hand in hand with nationalism, and it's so easy for a war to ignite when your countries are neighbors. Like it's it's not as isolated as the United States is. If we're gonna talk just about Europe, I mean the definition have, has always been diversity, so unity through diversity. I think that's super important to note. And all of these countries are able to come together based on their little pockets of 
incredible cultures and then you cross a border and it's different and that is one of the best things about Europe we are all living here we're studying here and we're able to cross a border and travel or go for an internship that's like across some other border and it's easy easy to get these things and that is something that everyone needs to start I mean there's been marches for Europe it needs to be something that is a collective what what is the common good that we're coming behind here? Yeah, and I think it's important to look at the population that, for example, these people uh, are voting for the populace. Who are the populations that are very into these kind of movements? If we look in the, uh, in the Middle East, you have the biggest population or the demographic there is that the youth or the um, young adolescents are the biggest group when we look at the demographics of the Middle East. And, and they are coming from, uh, let's say, from lower, probably lower middle class uh, age of people where they are, they don't, they are coming from unemployment. Uh, they have this, uh, maybe this negative feeling about what the West has come, you know, what has the West brought to us, you know, what, for example, in Egypt or in Tunisia. And if you have such a big population of just unemployed youth, it's very easier for you to come in um, and to have this populist kind of agenda um, to throw away um, every kind of liberal, democratic way of thinking that other leaders have brought in. And it's always against the elite that has already been established years and years before. This is what they've done to us. This is what we need to do. This is what they've done to us. And if if we want to have like an, a systematic kind of democracy in any of these, for example, Middle Eastern countries, it would be very difficult in the big populated countries. It would kind of almost be impossible to have it there. It would only be impossible in countries where they have a smaller population of maybe a more balanced uh, youth with the, uh, let's say, the older population. And Tunisia is, a, is a kind of the best example for that because compared to Egypt or to Syria or to other countries, they do kind of have the a smaller population and it's very easy, it's kind of more easier to have uh, a democracy there um, compared to uh, other Middle Eastern countries who are kind of um, suffering with unemployment and these kind of like built up resentment in, in their youth. And that's why the Arab Spring worked well there. That was the one place that it did seem to actually start to work, even though it started to make a, a movement across that area. I think one example we need to put on the table is also Turkey. That happened, what, three weeks ago now? Not, yeah, not even. even. Maybe two weeks ago. And that's another thing that it's, a, it's the same common theme where the cities, you see populous, like the population is concentrated in these cities and those are the voters who voted against populism or against certain things, the common themes, and then you see the countryside. And that's something that I just want to open up and have people talk about is is that is a common thing we talk about, maybe the countryside being uneducated or in them pulling in to voting for populist leaders. I think it's definitely a pull away from the farming style system that was used to be really prevalent probably in Turkey. Definitely it was in the US and now because of automation and um, technology it's just becoming you know so much harder for them to find jobs and they move to the city and they don't have the skills necessary to kind of go into that ecosystem per se. It's, it's just super interesting because it just reverts back to the original definition with uh, the agrarian society. There is a divide like I didn't even consider this until we discussed this in class like you always talk about black and white 
upper middle working class. Um, and now it's, yes, if you look at a voting map, it's in the United States, it's mostly red, it's mostly Republican, but if you look at the hubs, if you look at Chicago, if you look at New York, if you look at certain states on, on the West Coast, too, are, are mostly blue, but it's just something that has to be considered, and again, another strategy to take moving forward. This is, some, this is, a, this is a disconnect, and we have to work towards bridging this gap because now also, too, populism is polarizing. It's There's no dialogue happening between, at least speaking as an American, there's no dialogue happening between, between Democrats and Republicans. It's like, oh, you're a Republican? I really can't stand you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. The New York Times has done a very good few articles on speaking to people who have been like directly affected by or voted for Trump because of one topic. And one super interesting podcast that they did was coal miners and just how they specifically really like aligned with what he was saying because they have feel like they've been stripped from their jobs and that is something that I think speaks to that whole middle area of a country when you feel like you're no longer benefiting how do you benefit now if the whole transition is towards technology is towards these things how can we make people benefit and not revert back to these kind of like old ways, especially when we're trying to move on to more of like sustainable systems where coal mining and at large agriculture may not be the best alternative or isn't an alternative at all. And it needs to be something different. But yeah. it is an interesting thing that um, farmers or less educated people actually vote for those populist leaders who say in their campaigns that they would help those people and make a more affordable welfare system, but they do the opposite. So they would go better if they voted for the opponent who also says that it would um, improve that, but he doesn't have the, or she doesn't have the easy solution, but a complex solution where you have to think about it. And that's all what populism is, is that it's, for the common people, simple solution. It's never looking, it's never looking down the future. And we're at a point, especially in terms of the climate and the earth, we can't afford to make simple solutions. We have to look down the road. We've already crossed the point of irreversible damage to the earth. We are like, we have to like, we're at a point we have to kind of start resurrecting it. We need to find a way to work together. And that's what it all comes down to. We do need to have the conversations, like you said, to speak to people and be like, okay, well, I understand why this is happening in your world, but how can we fix it? Like, why can't we, we don't need to be polarized. That's what populism is. It, it's divisive by nature. Why can't we find something that is bringing people together and using education as as the platform to do that and it doesn't need to be one line of education it needs to it needs to be more more conversation i think definitely um i just one thing too the one of the issues too with um education is that now given these alternative facts and how for example the president of the united states is in an open war with the media his followers or people who like kind of fall into these populist ideals, they don't know what to believe. So it's very hard for them to actually have an education when they're quite constantly questioning truth or or mistruths or that's not a word. Um, but it's that's another thing that we need to talk about is freedom of speech and what role it plays in this populist agenda. Well, can they exist with each other? I think <clears throat> that. Um at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing, right? They want to be economically stable. They want to feel safe. 
And that's definitely a method that could be used in dealing with populism, saying you think that we have different ideas of what we want our country to go to, but that's just not the case. You know, we all want the same thing. Absolutely, and that message needs to be conveyed through through something because it's not going to be political leaders. It's is it going to be the media? And that's also a question I guess I have is is the media in charge of making populism snowball like it did? Like there was a lot of times where maybe we didn't need to hear these crate like we didn't need to hear about every single tweet that was happening that helped gain some type of movement behind it. Is it what's the media's real job here? Like, is it to convey just information or is it to be like, this is what happened today on these minor details that really aren't, I don't know, important? I think sometimes like uh, the media can simply just take facts. For example, um, I've, I've been following some uh, websites or platforms and what they've been doing is a track down for like the days, like day one, this is what has been signed on, this is the executive order on this, without any opinion. Like this is exactly what the elected president is doing day one, day two, day three, up again, like uh, until like the 100 days that he had finished like, a couple of days ago. So it's very important sometimes these just having the facts, it will shock you. It will actually take you by surprise compared to when someone comes and tells you well do you know how bad it is what the executive order means and down the road or you can just like bomb them with information with kind of simple numbers just to tell them well this is exactly what he did and make them you know let them have their own opinion because most of the time is that for example, a tweet is there, okay? Someone or some platform or some media retweets it, but with a quote, like they write, did you see what you elected? Oh, look at Americans, or look at, you know, Brexit, and this is the effects of it. They are helping in a very big way to make it even worse, you know, to reach out for people who didn't even actually know about it even more. Like if it was just, for example, his Twitter or his personal account on Facebook or whatever, it would probably have a different kind of a result. But because of the media, and again, every media comes with a lot of agenda of, of its own. If you have an objective one that just tells you exactly what's going on, this is what has been going on, this is... The the, the order that has been signed on, it, I think it will have a different effect and we would have probably witnessed a different probably a result, maybe, or... I think also the 24-7 news cycle is definitely a contributing factor as well. And that, it didn't used to be like that, right? There was like morning news and mm -hmm. evening news to an extent, but now no, it's, it's every day, it's, they repeat it over and yeah. over again. There's breaking news, which is never really that breaking most mm -hmm. of the time. And then the important information gets lost in kind of this like overload of media. Of headlines, of yeah. headlines that are misinterpreted often because living in the age we live in, we only consume a lot of, oftentimes we only consume the headline and then a couple paragraphs here and there and then you're on to the next article and that's where it's it's gone. And also taking quotes out of context where, where newspapers only take one quote, put it in the headline and then discuss it. But don't look at the first sentence and the sentence to follow, which actually are quite important. So in about a week's time, we're seeing an election with Le Pen and Macron that could potentially change the entire landscape of Europe. It is something that if a populist leader wins, we could see the fallout of the European Union, which is not only, I think, the largest economic um, market, market in the entire world right now, 
behind the U.S. and China, but also something that is the most inclusive country and also one of the big reasons that we haven't seen another World War III. Um, so going off of this, can we talk about just what happens if she wins? What happens if she doesn't win? What's the future of Europe? Okay, so first I've talked to French friends recently and I've watched the news and stuff. Many French people who I would say share my visions on politics think that Marine Le Pen will not win, that it's impossible. I'm not that confident because we've seen that it may happen as it has previously. Um, so I, um, I do hope for the best. <laughs> But uh, I don't know, I think she has her chances. People have predicted that she would win with 30% and she mm. only won with like 19 mm. or 20, mm. 21, I think. Right now, Macron won so by two, right? Yes, Macron is... Yes, but I mean, the polls uh, predicted her to win by more, which is yeah. kind of good because she did not win that much. But now, with all other uh, voters for other candidates, they will have to redirect whether to Le Pen or Macron and what Le Pen uses is the, um, the previous mandate of François Hollande which was mm. pretty bad and she uses that in her favor to also stating that Macron is only the same as Hollande and that's why even people who maybe are not uh, extreme right would vote for her because they don't want to have something exactly the same as François Hollande. They just yeah. want something different. And that's exactly what she says. She says, I will bring you real change. Real change. And that's what people want to hear. Yeah. Even if she does not explain what it's about. She just argues about immigration and French nationality and independence from Europe. But the only thing that strikes is like the change. And people feel like Macron will not change anything, which is why I'm worried, because people who will not think a bit more about it might just go vote for Le Pen in the end. It's a very common theme. In it a is. couple days before the election, I think it was October 28th, that the FBI released that they were re- looking into Hillary's case, and a lot of people think that that is part of the reason that changed her statistics going into the U.S. election. Before, on the end of October, she was ahead by a landslide, and everyone was confident again, like, no, we, this, is going, this is going to be something that is there. And so it is, it's an iffy situation mm -hmm. at best. I think if there's any sort of kind of terrorist attack or any kind of activity, oh, it like, se severely increases her chances because people are frightened. Yes, and there was just the shooting in yeah. Paris with right around the first yeah. election. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, let's take this head on. Let's let's say, in from our our beliefs, the worst the worst happens. Le Pen, right. Le Pen becomes the leader of France. She pulls well, out of Europe and well, NATO. Yes, yes, it might take some time, I think, but she will eventually go out of Europe, and then I don't know what will be left of Europe. I think it will be very interesting to see this, uh, if we can call it the trinity, like 
United States, France, and then uh, United Kingdom to change, and how they will change their 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 policies on many things. For example, um, ISIS or or immigration. Will they be working hand in hand? Will we be seeing them in meetings every day? You know, agreeing on policies that are the same because they do kind of rise from the same platform. Um, I think one of the things that are pretty dangerous is that if the decision would be to just go there and bomb ISIS. We've already seen Donald Trump with his uh, with many two instances where he has said I will bomb ISIS, where he did go and, and bomb, for example, the chemical um, buildings or uh, factories, which was that was debatable as well for many people. And then in Afghanistan, will they come hand in hand and start let's say, bombing where they shouldn't be. Because for a long time, the conversation was just through talk and through peace and through dialogue, we can uh, fight these kind of extremist ideologies versus now where it's going to be just action, 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 and we're just going to bomb them, or we're just going to close the borders, or we're just going to do this and that. So um, I, th I think it to say it would be interesting is it's, it's very, um, it underestimates the, 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 the dangerousness of the situation, um, especially with ISIS because it is, um, let's say, a lot of people, you know, related, for example, to the immigration problem, even if it was something that was going on before ISIS. But for them, bombing ISIS or getting rid of every per ISIS member is or would be the solution. And I think um, on the global financial level, it's also a huge concern about the euro. Will France go back to the franc because they don't want to be involved with Europe anymore? We don't know. She, I don't know if she's talked about it. Yeah, she has. But she is it economically sustainable? That's the question. It's, it's Germany not. is really the only last like stronghold in Europe. Then, and can Germany take on a financial like financially? Can Germany take it on refugee crisis wise? Can Germany continue to play the role they have been playing if no one else is going to play it, or is it a complete and utter fallout of all twenty eight? Germany has its election this September coming up, so how does this election influence the next one? Because Germany is is the next big big election. It's one of the last the last big superpower that would be left in Europe that can withstand economically and all these other realms. I th historically, I think it's super important to like see that the UK, France, and the US have always been alliances. They've always come together, but. This time, it's under something completely different. Yeah. The ideologically, it's completely different. It used to be to they all have these like very ideas of fighting for freedom, for certain types of rights, for democracy. And even though a lot of times policies overshadowed what was really happening, now it's under something very different. It's maybe they'll be united through. A certain agenda somewhere, but they are all very nationalistic viewpoints now. I'm not sure if it's similar, but I was thinking of just the Russian sphere of influence and kind of how President Putin is so important there, but he works with um, former Soviet Republic leaders like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all of those nations, because they're all strongmen and they need to support each other in order to seem like a viable alternative to like the Western sphere of life. If we're going to talk about populism, we need to also take in the outlying influences need to be brought in because it is something that is talked about every single day and no one really knows exactly how much of an influence it plays, if it plays an influence just in media, if it plays an influence in fake news, or what also, what is the end goal of these people that maybe could possibly work together? What role does Russia play?
I think Russia definitely plays a really destabilizing role because, especially given sanctions uh, on them recently, the more united the West is, so to speak, against them, it makes it harder for them to live, which means a like weaker ruble, which means a weaker economy, which means more unhappy people, bigger health crisis in the country. And so their not goal per se, but it would be better for them if there was people who weren't united so they could target each person one by one, which is a strategy that they've used throughout the Cold War and World War II to get what they want. Um, I think a very important uh, element here, uh, Florian, you brought up that Le Pen is all about change. And that is a that is a populist platform. Like mm-hmm. that's what we believe change, change, change. And this is something we will talk about in um, a follow-up article or podcast regarding Trump. How much change has he brought? An analysis of his hundred days since that occurred just um, about a week ago or so. How much change has he brought in terms of actual policy, in terms of actual implementation of um, institutions and all these other ideals? I mean, he says that he's going to do things. He's definitely, his rhetoric has definitely angered um, the world, personally, and also the change that he tried to bring about in terms of the quote-unquote Muslim ban. Yeah, so how much change? Maybe this is some type of change that we really needed as a populace. Maybe it's something that we needed to for these marches to happen, for the women's march to be 300,000 people big, for the climate march to be super big. What if these populist leaders were the bad thing that we needed to understand and to stop taking things for granted, to know just how much influence a group of people can have, that we can start doing the little things to make climate change not as big, to be better people to each other, to start taking people in. Like, what if it's what we needed? I think that could also answer the question what happens if she's not elected. I think this could be a time for reflection for Europe because we, again, looking ahead with Germany, that that France and the rest of Europe can look, do we want this? Do This is a populist leader. This is the, this is the most powerful populist leader in the world right now. Do we want this kind of change or this, again, is a reflection and a chance to respond and I hope to grow. It is also the first time in Europe and in France that the socialists and republicans are not running for office. And in Austria it was also the first time that neither a socialist leader or a conservative um, leader was in the run, even in the tete-a-tete in the um, final elections. So we should think about that, that we always sponsor those two parties, the um, socialists and the um, conservatives, which do not have any say now anymore. There's none. So now it's the right wing and the independent, because um, in Austria also an independent um, person ran for president, and that's the same thing which occurs in France now. We definitely have to think about that, reinventing the party system, because it's definitely not attractive anymore for people, how it was. 20 years ago. Because no one falls down into two little piles. Thank you for tuning in to our panel dedicated to taking on and breaking down populism. Next week, we will have a follow-up article on our website that covers both the French election and what the election results mean for France and ultimately for Europe. Furthermore, we will post a review of what arguably the most popular populist leader, Donald Trump, has actually accomplished in his first 100 days in office. As always, our objective is to spark dialogue, no matter how arduous the issues may be. So feel free to email us at dosageofrepartee at gmail.com or write us comments regarding our articles, podcasts on our website, www.sub-stances.weebly.com. Be sure to include any ideas or questions you may have, and we will address them later this month into the next, 
as we cover the UK general election on June 8th. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you enjoyed the show.